All right, well, if you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 12. Um, you may have heard that Father's Day is typically the least church-attended Sunday of the year, so it's encouraging to see so many of you fathers here and families here. Way to go, guys. Um, we are doing a, finishing up a short series that we've been doing on identity and gender and sexuality. We'll finish it up today. It's our fourth week, and then we're going to... Um, next week, we'll do a one-off sermon, uh, as many of us will be heading to family camp, uh, the church, church's family camp in eastern Washington. And then the following week will be July 4th. Um, we still have church on July 4th. And uh, we will have Pete Williamson here preaching for us, as who's been here a few times before, and many of you know. And then the week after that, on the 11th, we'll begin the book of James. So that's kind of where we're going. Um, and so today we're going to finish up this series. Today's, we're going to do a shorter sermon today, a little bit. Um, it will be on a topic that applies to um, much more things than just this sermon series, but has some particular relevance for that. And then at the end of the sermon today, we're going to take 10 or 15 minutes and just address a few specific questions um, that have come up or perhaps uh, come to your mind as we've been going through this series. Okay? So let me begin by asking some questions to get us going today. Where in your life do you feel weak? Or when? When in your life do you feel weak? When do you come up against the, the reality of your own weakness, insufficiency, um, powerlessness, that you are lacking in something? Or to put it another way, what, what in your life harasses you or torments you or constantly nags at you? Something that is just constantly there that you wish you could get rid of, but won't go away. Um, perhaps a, a physical weakness or difficulty or pain. Perhaps something inward related to your desires, emotions, temptations. Perhaps in relationships that, that overwhelm you and constantly bear down on you. The thing that makes it very clear that whatever the victorious Christian life is, this is not it. You can con consider the example of a guy like Charles Spurgeon. Um, perhaps you've heard of Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers of history. He's known as the Prince of Pe Preachers. He's a pastor of a very large church in London for 38 years. Uh, he began uh, pastoring when he was very young. At age 22, he was already the most uh, popular preacher of his day. He often preached to more than 10,000 people in the 19th century. And yet he dealt with many, many um, difficulties and physical and mental distresses. Uh, early on in his career, he was preaching to, to a crowd of thousands of people, and a, a, a few guys decided to pull a prank and started yelling, fire, fire. And everyone started stampeding out of the building, and seven people ended up dying in the stampede. A bunch more were seriously injured. And apparently, Spurgeon's mental state never recovered from this. His, his wife wrote, My beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter in her throne, and we sometimes feared that he would ever preach again. One of his biographers wrote about the numerous, besides this, the numerous other ailments and 
things he suffered with. Um, he wrote, he suffered from a burning kidney inflammation called Bright's disease, as well as gout and rheumatism and neuritis. The pain was such that it soon kept him from preaching for one-third of the time. Added to that, overwork, stress, and then guilt about the stress began to take their toll. And all of this was in the public eye and was jumped on by his many critics, not making it easier to bear. And so as you hear such stories, as you consider your own story and your own experience with weakness and, and suffering, how do you respond? How do you view this as a Christian or perhaps not? How, what do we do with this? How do we process them? Where do we turn? Well, one response is various kinds of prosperity gospels, where we believe that our own health and wealth and comfort and ease are what matter most in life, and so we should seek them at whatever cost. And this can take various forms. So sometimes this is a message that your desires, what you feel inside in the, in the depths of who you are, your desires are always good, and so you should embrace them all and seek to fulfill them all. Be true to yourself, be authentic, get what you want. And anything that stands in the way of your desires, of you reaching your desires, is therefore standing in the way of your very humanity and your happiness and is therefore oppressive and unjust. This is a prosperity gospel, and this message is very loud in our world. But other times, it, the prosperity gospel comes in the form of thinking or saying that God himself actually wants such a life for us, that God wants us right now to be healthy and wealthy and comfortable and at ease, and so pray hard enough, live faithfully, and you'll, you'll find these things. With enough, enough prayer and faithful living, you can be free of all weakness and all suffering and all hardship. And if there's a God, he is just like an end to a means in this. In either case, in both of these and in various kinds of prosperity gospels, the end result is the same. The ultimate goal is the same. Freedom from weakness and difficulty and hardship. And if we factor God into the, that equation, he is simply just like this cosmic genie that we go to that can help us out on our quest to be self-sufficient and self-satisfied. So here's the question. Is the purpose of our lives that we find blessing and prosperity and comfort and ease and power and success at whatever cost, through whatever means? Maybe God can help us on that quest, maybe not, doesn't really matter. Or is the purpose of our lives that we would draw near to God and that we would find him to be satisfying, that we would find joy and satisfaction in worshiping him alone. These are very different ways to approach life. And even in the church, there's a lot of confusion about this. There are very different gospels in the church, in America, in the world. There are gospels that are all about you and your happiness and your self-rule. 
And God is merely a side character that can maybe, maybe help you along the way. And then there are Gospels that are all about the glory and goodness and grace and worth of God and our joy and satisfaction in him. J.I. Packer wrote more than 60 years ago about this very thing um, in words that are still extremely relevant. And he was compared and said, notice that these two gospels were competing. And so he said of this new gospel, which is the man-centered false gospel, he says it fails to make men, so here's the problem with it, it fails to make men God-centered in their thoughts and God-fearing in their hearts, because this is not primarily what it is trying to do. One way of stating the difference between it and the old, real, true gospel is to say that it, this new one, is too exclusively concerned to be helpful to man, to bring peace, comfort, happiness, and satisfaction, and too little concerned to glorify God. The old gospel was helpful too, more so indeed than is the new, but, so to speak, incidentally, for its first concern was always to give glory to God. And so we're going to consider today what this living a life for the glory of God, this real gospel, and how it affects our lives looks like in a very practical way. Um, we're going to use this passage in 2 Corinthians 12 that I've brought up probably every week the past, um, in this past series about Paul's thorn in the flesh. Um, and we're going to just dive into that and consider some of the just wonderful um, and very practical uh, applications and principles here for us, whatever our experience with weakness and suffering might be. So let me read the four verses we're going to cover. Let me just read them together here, and then we'll walk through them. So 2 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So we get an insight into an experience of Paul's here, which God speaks into. God directly speaks to Paul about this, and so this gives us some insight into God's purpose for our lives, especially in our weaknesses and hardships, etc. So before we apply this broadly, let's just consider Paul's experience here. What was Paul's thorn in the flesh? Well, we don't really know exactly. Um, it could have been something physical. A thorn in the flesh could imply that it is, is a physical ailment that he dealt with. Um, you know, you can think of an actual thorn in your flesh or like a, like a big splinter that you have that is just a constant source of harassment and annoyance. It could have been something inward, psychological, something that he had to deal with just in his desires, emotions, temptations. 
It could have been a very clear just attack of the devil. He calls it a messenger of Satan. But whatever it is, and it's kind of actually a benefit to us that we don't know exactly what it is because it helps us to apply it more broadly. Um, whatever it is, it was something that harassed him or tormented him is another translation. It was a, a regular and reoccurring annoyance, perhaps like a literal thorn in your skin that won't go away. Or those of you who have back pain, you know how debilitating and annoying back, constant back pain can be. What we do know is where this came from. It ultimately came from God. Paul says, it was given to me. And unless you might think that it was the devil giving it to him, he t we're told that twice that it was given to him to keep him from becoming conceited, which is not a purpose that the devil would have for Paul. That is a purpose that God has for Paul. Now, so it this is something that comes ultimately from God, but that does not mean it is good in and of itself, right? This messenger of Satan was not good in and of itself, but it was meant for good. It was brought about by God's providence for ultimately good purposes in Paul's life. Just like Jesus' death was not good in and of itself, it was done by evil people, and yet it was brought about by God's providence for a glorious purpose. Just like Joseph, when he was sold into slavery um, by the evil intentions of his brothers, this was not a good thing in and of itself, but what did Joseph say to his brothers later on? He said, what you meant for evil, like your intentions were actually evil in this, but God meant it for good. God didn't just like frantically respond to me like, I didn't see this coming. I got to work this out for good. God meant this very thing for good. So God doesn't delight in our pain and suffering. He certainly doesn't delight in our sin or the sin of others against us. These are the results of the fall, the results of the devil, the results of our own sin and the sin of others. None of this pleases God, but he will sovereignly ordain, bring about give, as Paul says, trials and weaknesses and difficulties and persecutions. He will providentially use the brokenness of the world, others' sin against us, the attempts of the devil, even our own sin, to bring about his good purposes. What others mean for evil, God will use for good. What we ourselves, when we sin, mean for evil, God himself will use for good. What does Paul say in Romans 8? For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. And then Paul, here in 2 Corinthians 12, affirms that God's sovereignty Paul affirms God's sovereignty about how he responds here. So before we get any further in the text, notice how Paul immediately responded to this. He prayed three times for this to be removed. He prayed fervently for God to remove this thorn. Because if God is the ultimate source of the thorn, and God is not merely frantically responding to the work of the devil, then God is the one who can remove it. You see, if God is truly good and loving, as 
we believe, as he demonstrates himself to be over and over again, then his sovereignty, even in these situations, is a source of comfort and hope. God is still in control. God still has good purposes. Whatever the trial, whatever the weakness, whatever the frustration we face, the source of constant annoyance, it's not outside of God's reign and purposes. We're not dealing with an out-of-control, chaotic world here where God is just one of many actors and hopefully God comes out on top. The world is in rebellion. We are in rebellion whenever we, we sin against God. The devil is working against God. But God is providentially working all things together for his glory and our joy and satisfaction in him. And the surprising thing that we see here about this is that in this life, until we reach the life to come, our weaknesses and difficulties and trials and and all all of these things are not a hindrance to this, but are actually a prime factory, a prime context for God's glory and our satisfaction in him to be produced, right? If that is the end to which God is working, his glory and our satisfaction in him, what Paul is saying here, and we'll see this as we continue to go on, is that all of our weaknesses and powerlessness and persecutions and calamities and hardships and frustrations are not a hindrance to God's purposes in this life, but are actually a very specific and useful context, a factory for God to bring this about. So let's consider our own lives. Consider your own life. What are these areas? What are the thorns? What are the weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities, to draw on Paul's words here? What are the things that harass us? Perhaps we have weaknesses physically. Our physical abilities are not what they used to be or are not what others might have. We can't do the same things that we, that we used to be able to or that we would like to be able to do. Perhaps mentally we have weaknesses in our minds. Our mental capacity is not what it used to be or not what others have. Perhaps we or those we love, uh, love deal with mental illnesses. Perhaps our emotions are a source of harassment. Uh, We are affected inwardly and in our minds by in ways that we don't always understand. Perhaps our past comes up and affects us and and we we deal with, we have to just direct more energy to our emotions and desires than we would like. Perhaps perhaps we feel weakness relationally. Our bandwidth is constantly stretched by all of the people that depend on us. And in ways that we can't just get out of, we have people that depend on us. Perhaps marriage and parenting reveal us to be more prone to impatience and anger and bitterness and unforgiveness than we we would like to admit in ways that don't just go away. Perhaps we feel weak spiritually, like faith just doesn't come 
easy for us. We, we constantly wrestle with questions and doubts. And perhaps we're, we deal with temptations to certain sins in ways that just don't go away. We, we pray against them, but we continue to battle. I think sometimes this is just simply finding life mundane and unsatisfying. We struggle to find purpose in life. We don't really have any high highs, low lows. We're just kind of coasting along. We don't feel much joy or satisfaction. We're tempted to just numb ourselves with distractions and busyness and work and vacations. In line with this series, perhaps we find ourselves inwardly dealing with desires and weaknesses and temptations that don't align with God's ideal for gender and sexuality. And then Paul lists, lists per- persecutions and insults. We, we find ourselves having to bear reproach for holding to biblical views and convictions and lifestyles. And then calamities. Things happen to us that, that we didn't see coming, that, that are clearly not good, that are outside of our control, but they happened. What are we to believe in all of this? What are we to do? How are we to interpret these things? And that's why a passage like this is so helpful and so comforting because it pulls back the curtains on what God is doing in times like this, in situations like this. And so notice a couple things as we move on through this. First, we're told one specific reason for Paul's thorn, for Paul's dealing with weakness. Um, Twice in the beginning verses there, in 7 and 8, Paul says, it was to keep me from becoming conceited. He repeats that. To keep me from becoming conceited, this thorn was, God gave me this thorn in the flesh. And the obvious implication is there that, is that God values our humility and dependence much more than we do. God is willing to give Paul a thorn in the flesh to harass him because Paul's humility and continued dependence on God is that important. Or to put it the other way around, Pride and self-sufficiency and thinking that you don't need God is that evil. One of God's purposes in our lives is to keep us from becoming conceited so that we would depend on him and turn to him and find him to be sufficient and find satisfaction in him. So could this be what God is doing in your thorns, in your coming face-to-face with your weakness and inadequacy and suffering and dealing with persecutions and dislike and calamities. Could God be healing you, actually healing you, of the human tendency to want to be self-sufficient, to have everything you need apart from God, to rule your own life apart from God. And then notice the second thing here. We've 
further get a window into God's purposes. So God speaks to Paul, and he says the well-known phrase, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's interesting to think how we might have hoped this sentence would have ended, right? My grace is sufficient for you, so I'm going to overwhelm you with comforts and pleasures and blessing and make life so easy for you. My grace is sufficient for you, so you're never going to have to really struggle. I'm going to keep you from all of that. My grace is sufficient for you, so whenever you pray to me, I'll immediately give you what you want and take you out of those difficulties. But it's actually quite different than that. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is somehow perfected, brought to completion by our very weaknesses. There is something about our experience weakness, experiencing weakness and insufficiency and powerlessness that magnifies his power, that gives a context for us to experience his presence and power, and for that presence and power also to be displayed to the world. This is quite different than how we generally conceive of what a sufficient and satisfying life looks like. Sufficiency in God's view in this life is dependence on his grace and on his power. What God is working in us and through us, especially in our weaknesses, is making us content and satisfied in depending on his power. My grace is sufficient for you. And I think we need to note that grace is not just this thing. Great, grace is not just this lifeless thing out there that we just want to get more of. It's kind of hard to rejoice in that, if we're honest. Uh, Dane Ortland writes, There is, purely speaking, no such thing as grace. That's Roman Catholic theology, in which grace is a kind of stockpiled treasure that can be accessed through various carefully controlled means. But the grace of God comes to us no more and no less than Jesus Christ comes to us. In the biblical gospel, we are not given a thing. We are given a person. We are given a living, living and present and active being who is gracious, who is compassionate, who draws us to himself. And we are to be satisfied not in just grace as a kind of lifeless thing, but in him. We are to love him, to find satisfaction in his presence with us, in his love for us, of his sovereignty over us, in his tenderness and compassion for us. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then look in the last part of our passage how Paul responds. He says a couple of things. He says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. I am content with weaknesses. 
So he not only begrudgingly accepts that this is his lot in life, he learns over time, I don't think we have to say that this is immediately how Paul responded. He immediately responded by praying fervently for this to be, for God to remove this. But over time, he learned to be content and to even boast and glory in these things because he comes to see them as glorious and gracious opportunities or factories, contexts for God to be glorified and him to be satisfied in God. Again, this doesn't mean that we are immediately joyful when we face our weaknesses. We, we likely aren't. Uh, naturally, we, in our sin nature, we don't interpret our experience that way. Our first thought doesn't tend to be, I wonder how God's going to use this. I'm so excited for how God is going to use this. But that's exactly why we need this scripture, to help us interpret our experience accurately. God is at work. God is present. God is good. And he is using this weakness, this difficulty, to reveal his power in me and through me and to make me more satisfied in him. To quote from Charles Spurgeon, who understood all of this, it seems, he says, when the gold knows why and wherefore it is in the fire, it will thank the refiner for putting it into the crucible and will find a sweet satisfaction even in the flames. We don't know all that God is doing in our trials and suffering and weaknesses. We can't see all that he is doing, but we do know that he is at work and his purposes are good and that he has ordained the fire for our good, for our strengthening, for our sufficiency and satisfaction in him. Will God sometimes rescue us from our trials and difficulties? Of course. Will God sometimes inwardly as we deal with things change our desires and affections and, and struggles and temptations? Of course. We certainly ha are, are in the right to pray like Paul did three times fervently, or, or more than three times, but to pray fervently for God to change us, change situations. But... Should our hope ultimately be in being free in this life from all difficulties and pains and weaknesses? No. There's a, there's a big difference between desiring comfort and freedom and, and, and happiness in all things. Um, I think that desire is given to us from God. We long for that day when he does remove all of those things. We can pray for it, and he will give it to us to some degree in this life. But there's a big difference between that desire and living our life for freedom from all weakness and pain, which is idolatry. Our hope should be in God and not just getting something from God. Our hope should be in God to be good in all things. And our life shouldn't go on hold every time that we don't know exactly how God is working good 
which I think is our tendency. It's just put, put God at arm's length when we're not sure what he's doing. No, these very times are opportunities to experience his grace more deeply. Our weaknesses are opportunities to experience his strength. Our insufficiencies are opportunities to experience his sufficiency. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, the end result of this is not weakness. The end result is actually strength, but strength in dependence on God. So how do we practically do this? What does this tangibly look like? Well, I think it definitely includes turning to God in prayer, crying out to God, bringing our pains and fears and doubts and questions and and frustrations before God, as Scripture teaches us to do over and over again, the Psalms of Lament and such. We also, it also involves remembering and resting in who He is and what He's done. It, it involves giving thanks and worship to Him, especially when we don't feel like it, as an act of faith. And it also involves gathering with one another, with people who are on this same path, with people who are themselves experiencing various weaknesses and pains and, and difficulties and calamities, and witnessing, ministering to one another, being ministered by one another in the various ways God enables us, seeing how others are acting out in faith in the midst of often very difficult times. In a church even of this size, there are many weaknesses and difficulties and calamities and persecutions that we deal with. Let me just leave you with Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Stirring up one another love and good works, meeting together, encouraging one another, especially as we move forward. May this be true of us 